Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 390, Leagues and Covenants. Last time, along with some over-enthusiastic blather about new sheets and peace petitions, we heard about the King's failed campaign to secure the West, advance on London and enforce peace on those darned malignant rebels. But there was not just one piece in play in the second half of 1643. More than one throw of the dice remained to Charles in this year, which had gone so well until the summer. Newcastle had invested vast sums in the royal court and his victory over Fairfax in June at Adwalton Moor in June had been such a joy to Charles that William Cavendish had duly been promoted to Marquis of Newcastle, which is great because they like each other too. The victory had led to the collapse of the position Thomas Fairfax and his dad had built up and led to the capture of the West Riding towns by Newcastle that had been so hot for Parliament. Fairfax, père et fils, had fled to Hull on the east coast of Yorkshire, where they were currently holed up. However, before we get to all that fighty stuff, we have two serious topics to talk about, friends and religion. They are, as ever, a bit mixed up. Let's talk Scotland and the drive for religious reform at the Westminster Assembly. A bit of background. The context is that north of the Wall in June 1643, a convention of estates is going on in Scotland. This is basically a form of the Scottish Parliament. Charles had not wanted the convention to go ahead and had instructed his agent, the Duke of Hamilton, to withhold the required royal assent. So, now Archibald Campbell, the Marquis of Argyll, was firmly in control of the Covenanter Revolution and over the last couple of years, Charles and Hamilton had tried to build a party of magnates and peers to dislodge him and they had failed. So, Argyll just called the Convention of Estates anyway. King or no king, who cares, eh? Hamilton then talked Charles into giving way. Hamilton was to regret that. But he felt he could restrain the Covenanters. After all, the history of Scotland and Parliament, before everyone got so revolutionary in 1638, had been one of leadership and authority from the magnates of the realm. They had been supreme, they could be surely again. To cut a long story short, Hamilton was wrong. Dead wrong. For a time. And it is only a time, really, that grip of the magnates had been broken. True, there was no magnate bigger than Argyle, but the Covenant held sway and with it the lesser nobles, the lairds, were firmly behind the revolution, as were the burgesses of the town. Both were fervently cheered on and encouraged by the Kirk in the form of its General Assembly. The triumph of the Covenanted state was absolute. 
So, so it turned out there was little Hamilton, Montrose and other royalists could do about it. Really, Hamilton should never have been so optimistic to his boss. As we heard a while ago, any trust in Charles in Scotland had been battered to a pulp into the shape of Voldemort's soul. His treatment of the Scottish commissioners in Oxford at the start of the year had pretty much done it again. Then, wow, along came the extraordinary revelation that while pretending to talk peace, he was plotting an invasion anyway with the help of Randall MacDonald, the Duke of Antrim from Ireland. Just to double that jeopardy, Antrim was a MacDonald. Ew, from Argyle's point of view. Ew, fear and damnation. Argyle was Campbell clan traditional and long, long, and I mean long-standing blood enemies about whom people still weep. Never trust a Campbell, I'm told, by a MacDonald. Hamilton's impotence was quickly exposed in the convention and he took the fatal decision, outvoted at every turn, to withdraw from the convention, probably with a flounce, though history doesn't really record, but you know, that would have been in the Cavalier idiom. Montrose would have certainly flounced. Anyway, the problem with this was while Hamilton hoped it would reduce the legitimacy of the convention, it really didn't, and it just left the Royalist Party there without leadership. It basically handed Argyle a cart as blanche as carts can be blanched, though Hamilton's blues were still blue. Meanwhile, in the other room, the Scots were entertaining suitors from England. A commission from the English Committee of Safety led by one Harry Vane the Younger now they were looking for friends for an alliance. The forces of the English Parliament at this particular time, which is before the failure of the Royal Newbury campaign, was looking very bleak indeed. They wanted, they needed, the help of the Scottish army. At least 10,000 foot and a 1,000 horse would be good, if you wouldn't mind awfully. Argyle and the Covenanters had two main considerations in this conversation, religion and security and the two were intimately and inextricably intertwined like lovers in a timeless embrace. Ooh, misses. But seriously, how could the Scots be secure that Charles, thoroughly untrustworthy as he had proved himself over the last five years, would not simply reverse all the changes that had been achieved by the revolution if he regained control in England? If he won in England, he'd surely impose royal absolutism and reimpose bishops in Scotland's perfect Kirk. And indeed, plot spoiler, his son will eventually do just that, and in a particularly brutal fashion after 1660. Just so you know, their fears were not idle. So, for the success of the Scottish covenanting state, proudly considered by its inhabitants the perfect expression of the two kingdoms of God and King, not only must Charles lose, but England must also become a proper Presbyterian covenanted state, irreversible, under the same national church. And Ireland, actually, but that'll have to come next. Rome wasn't built in a day, nor the kingdom of God, for that matter. Anyway, moving on. More than that, the Scots must have a day-to-day -day voice in the way England is governed and run to make sure any backsliding would be quickly sat on by a covenanter backside, a seat at the table... That's the price, then. Religious unity, seat at the table, then you get your, your soldiers. The lead English commissioner did not want to pay this price. This is Harry Vane the Younger, and we have spoken of him before. You might remember his dad, Harry Vane Senior, Secretary of State, who made such a horlicks of his testimony against Strafford. Harry Vane Senior's political influence was killed as effectively as Strafford by the trial, he will die in odd circumstances that might suggest suicide, actually, in 1655, with a grim preamble to his will, talking of a life that was nothing but vanity and vexation. Anyway, just in case you've been wondering about Harry Vane Sr. Harry Vane the Younger, the only Harry Vane we'll talk about from here on in, was a very different kettle of fish to his dad. He's 30 years old now. We've heard something of his career as governor in Massachusetts. He was quick-witted a sharp intelligence. Even his enemy Clarendon wrote of him, great natural parts, quick conception, very ready, sharp and weighty expression. And if you want as backhanded a compliment as pretty as you're likely to get, Charles II would pronounce him too dangerous to let live. Vane had a brain of extraordinary range and flexibility, 
His biographer, Ruth Mayers, used a very interesting phrase, which I'm going to give you. Most politicians are not thinkers. Most theorists are not actors. Vane was both. I mean, discuss. Not sure I necessarily agree with the first part of the sentence, and of course, bow to Ruth's view on the latter. The point for here, though, most specifically, is around Harry's religious views. And here we come across the word, ladies and gentlemen, of Iranical. First thing I did in Dire Straits was head for the OED, double four time, Pacific, ironical means, a person who seeks a peaceful solution, should never appear in a podcast, but we are at the frontiers here. Vane would spend his life pursuing the reconciliation of all under the banner of civil and Christian liberty. Like most people in the English Revolution, Vane was on a journey, and so his views will develop through extraordinary times, but he'd already stood up and publicly declared that his support for the Commonwealth was to protect liberties and religion from oppression and violence. Irenical, then. Or in the nomenclature of the English Revolution, Vane was part of that religious and political group we've started to call the Independents, Congregationalists, who believed everyone must find their own path to God, unless it involved the Antichrist, otherwise known as the Pope, and indeed that the agents of conformity and oppression, otherwise known as bishops. Oh, and I mean searching for peace in religious terms, that is. Not in terms of the fight against the king, since defeating the king was what was required to protect liberties and religion from oppression and violence. Harry Vane was firmly in the war party. This war must be prosecuted with all possible energy and force. The king must be made to listen. Okay, with all that in mind then, Vane was in a bind and in a very poor negotiating position in Edinburgh. He needed the troops absolutely. He hated the idea of enforced religious uniformity of whatever kind. But he faced negotiators of some power who were determined that if the English were to have their help, their incorporation within the Presbyterian Church was non-negotiable. Vane twisted and he turned. He argued and he wriggled like a ferret in a sack. To be honest, he was perfectly happy that the Scots be included in a joint commonwealth, that their views be heard at the table of governance, that they join with him in seeking religious reform. No problem. But for Vane and the independents, the Presbyterian Kirk of Scotland was as great a tyranny as any other enforced uniformity, whether that be bishops or pope. The result of this discussions was the Solemn League and Covenant. It is one of the most important documents of the whole darned shebang. It was in the form of an oath to be sworn by all subjects of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, living under one king and being of one reformed religion, it declared. The purpose of the oath was to preserve the religion of the Church of Scotland and to reform the Church of England and Ireland. And the only titchy-tiny narrowest of loopholes Vane managed to get into this new whip of six strands was the phrase, according to the word of God. Now look, there's quite a bit of controversy about according to the word of God clause. Later on, the Scots would be livid that they'd been tricked by Vane. Because England will, in the end, after much toing and much froing, go their own way, according to their own idiom. And that was not what the Scots wanted at all. But Vane didn't hide it at the time. He made it clear England only wanted what he called a civil league. And that his loophole was designed to keep a door open in England to independency, rather than giving an, an irrevocable commitment to divine right Presbyterianism. At the time, the Scots had England and Wales prostrate over a barrel, facing the prospect of military defeat, and believed they'd delivered a spanking settlement. On the 17th of August, the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn by all members of the Convention and of the General Assembly of the Kirk. To be fair to them, every Scot in that place felt they had indeed made a lasting commitment to a commonwealth of peoples. They were in no way cynical. Argyle was pretty much capable of anything, but not in general. Look, I'm going on, I am well aware, but this is important, everyone. Not only would the Solemn League impose significant expectations that could not reasonably be met with religious peace with Parliament, it would be a mountain in the way of reaching agreement with the King, a river 
a river in flood cascading down from the heights of Scafold Pike into the southern fells in the depth of winter between the king and a workable compromise. John Pym, ultimate author of this deal, was as guilty as Charles in underestimating the religious convictions of his king, which were not cynical either, which were sincere if extreme. John Pym's were also not cynical. They were also sincere if extreme, and sadly, never the twain could meet. Only with the attitude of the likes of Vane and the independents was there any chance, and even that was a rocky path. Closing the deal was immeasurably helped by the inclusion of the Scots in something called the Westminster Assembly. So let us talk about that. An event which will of itself have a long-running significance and impact well beyond the time of revolutions. The thing is, the state of religion in England was a bit of a dog's breakfast by this stage. Caught up in politics, bishops had sort of been abolished, but not really yet. The root and branch had been sidelined, then revived, like yesterday's shepherd's pie. The last 20 years or so had been absolutely mad. When old Queen Bess had expired, there we were with a church, Calvinist in theology, Episcopal in management, mildly ceremonial in form, based on the Book of Common Prayer. Yes, there were Puritans who muttered and tried to reform it, but within the church, separatism was a small, weedy plant in need of manure. Now look where we are after 40 years of manure. Lord's reforms had exposed the church in England to conflict and debate. It had empowered and encouraged and fertilised dissent. The influence of the Dutch and Genevan reformed churches and the Scottish Kirk had led to a new growing Presbyterianism to replace the old Elizabethan breed which had withered. The experience of the settlements in New England, freed from the constraints to follow their own hearts, had been very different, often choosing a Congregationalist approach, independency. And so look, now we have three strands, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Independent. So, by ordinance of Parliament, because the King would never contemplate such a thing, Parliament called 121 divines to Westminster under its control and authority to decide what the form of worship should be. There is a list of them. They come from all over England and Wales. There were also lay assessors who would work with them and MPs involved. The historian Austrian Woolrich is interestingly passionate about what might have happened to balance these three strands if the situation had not been so very different and political. Maybe there would even have been some toleration because it's difficult to see a solution without it. But it was not to be because the imperative of the Scottish alliance would skew everything. It might also have been different if the Scottish commissioners, authors of the National Covenant amongst them, had possessed any scruples about imposing the settlement we have just spoken of. But the Scottish Kirk knew full well they were in possession of the truth, quite apart from their own need for security. The English and Welsh might not have all appreciate that right now with their weird hybrid thing, but they would in time. Well, Rich is actually quite funny about it, so I thought I might quote him. Here we go. They were no more troubled about imposing an alien religious system on an unwilling nation than a group of Soviet commissaries would be when delivering the pure milk of Marxist-Leninist orthodoxy to a satellite country after the Second World War. By golly, strong stuff. I mean, I think you have to leaven that bread a bit. Presbyterianism was already a force within in England. The Scots had supporters in the Assembly and in Parliament, so it's a bit strong. But the point about impact is valid. The English and Welsh found themselves pushed into a religious straitjacket that would never, never, ever find general acceptance and create unity. If there had been a small, feeble mushroom of hope, trying to push its way through the mulch of religious tyranny, then news from Ireland provided the heavy, clod-hopping thump of walking boots to squish said mushroom into the mush of nothingness. So we heard last time about the defeat of Rue O'Neill at Clonus, and the loss of influence of the more extreme Catholic faction then cleared the way to an agreement between Charles's Lieutenant Ormond and the Confederacy. It was essentially an annually renewable truce, and it was called the Cessation. The Cessation will end up being renewed until 1646, as it happens. Here's the deal, and the whys and wherefores there. For the Confederates, the benefits of Cessation were twofold. 
They hoped to agree a good deal with the king. And remember that for the Confederacy to succeed and get this deal, the Puritan English Parliament must lose. Secondly, though, if they were not fighting the English now, they could concentrate all their fire on the new Scots in Ulster. For Charles, of course, it was simply about winning the war in England. Who knows whether he had any intention or interest in engaging in any long-term deal for the benefit of Ireland. For the moment, he got professions of loyalty and the promise of 10,000 soldiers to fight for the cause. He paid a heavy price, though. One impact was that it confused the Protestant armies in Ireland, because now you've got some who are happy to work with loyal Catholics, some who aren't, and then there's the new Scots. So it splits Irish Protestants and their response to the rebellion. But most obviously, the new sheets in England went bananas. It had happened. Exactly what the extremists and the nutters had threatened had happened. The king was deploying an Irish Catholic army to England. Remember the 1641, the massacres of 10,000, no 100,000, no 200,000 innocent Protestants were now our very own king and what's his phrase, father of the nation, that guy? Well, the father of the nation is sending them here to do the same to us. No matter all the thing about the vast exaggeration of 1641, no matter that the contingents that started arriving were initially 5,000 English soldiers. We are talking visceral fear and panic here, and for many, that trumped everything. So, back to the Westminster Assembly. It will take a while to deliver, so we'll come back to it, but the immediate result is that if there had been any doubt, the cessation killed it, and all the members of Parliament in Westminster and all the Assembly of Divines gathered in St. Margaret's Church on the 25th of September 1643 and all swore to the Solemn League and Covenant. The new covenant was sent to parishes throughout England and Wales. Many signed, many did not. It was this, for example, which finally separated the younger Ralph Verney from active participation in the parliamentary cause which had given his family so much grief. He was a firm Episcopalian, as many were. He could not stomach this religious radicalism. Torn now in his political and religious convictions, he placed his property in trust to protect it, he gained letters of protection from both sides, and he and Mary ran away from the problem to live in France. He would not return until 1653. Now, it would take a while for the Scottish army to arrive, but the commitment now was to send 21,000 troops, that would make a massive impact. It was to be paid for by the English. Once they'd arrived, the Committee of Safety would be replaced by a new executive committee, the Committee of Both Kingdoms, where English, Scots and Welsh would work together. It'll become known as the Derby House Committee, for that is where it sat. But that's a few months in the future. Charles has a few months' grace while soldiers from Ireland are arriving through the port at Chester, and as yet, no Scots. The hapless Duke of Hamilton, incidentally, was forced to leave as his hopes and those of his master crashed and burned in Edinburgh before he was forced to sign the Solemn League and Covenant. He arrived back at Oxford, seeking mercy and understanding for his tireless work. I mean, he gets a lot of grief from historians, does the Duke of Hamilton, and without doubt he fails miserably, but look, his boss gave him a shocking hand to play, and not only that, kept dropping bombs, rejecting the Scottish Commission in April 1643, the shockingly absurd intriguing with Antrim. Surely, Hamilton never stood a chance, and he risked his life trying. I'm on Team Hamilton. Anyway, so, he arrives at court. There he finds the undeniably beautiful, optimistic, aristocratic and dashing James Graham, Earl of Montrose, and he had a plan to conquer Scotland for the king. Montrose straight out accused Hamilton of treason. Charles said, yes, yes, that must be right. After all, can't have been my fault. Hamilton will spend January 1644 to April 1646 incarcerated in Pendennis Castle in Cornwall for his service to the king. Seems a bit harsh to me, but that's the price of failure, I suppose. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Okay, let's get physical, let's get fighty. Let's return then to where the air is cleaner, to the north and to the east, to talk of many things, among which will not be shoes or chips, but possibly ceiling wax might make a passing appearance. But we will talk Fairfax, Manchester, Cromwell. I'm going to take you first back to the chaos after Adwalton Moor in June 1643 and the defeat there. The parliamentarian cause was in meltdown, although fortunately... John Hotham had been removed as governor at Hull before he could turn it over to the king. It is worth noting that Cromwell had played a part in exposing a treachery which, had it succeeded, would have made any recovery in the north much, much harder. Fairfax was on the run, the west riding towns falling to the royalist commander Earl, now Marquis, of Newcastle. Fairfax later wrote about that 40-hour ride from Bradford to Hull after defeat at Adwalton. He saw his wife, Anne, captured by the royalists. He had become separated from his little five-year-old daughter, left in a farm believed dead. They would later be reunited. Mary would become a Buckingham, but that's another story. Thomas was bleeding, having been shot in the wrist. But the party made it to join his father, Fernandino, at Hull. The locals saw the desperate-looking party arrive on the 4th of July, and a local minister wrote a worried note in the parish register. War in our gates! All our lives now at stake. Lord, deliver us for his sake. Fairfax, like so many, believed in God's providence, and he wrote, In all humility, I say, I was in Job's condition, when he said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return hither. But God, who is a God of mercy and consolation, doth not always leave us in distress. Just trying to give you a proper flavour of all the godliness in which these events are soaked, it is easy to forget. It is the Fairfax's resolution at this point that Newcastle had to deal with if he was to take the war south and east into Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire, maybe on to London. Hull was a major fortress and could not easily be left. And its new governor, Fernandino Fairfax, and his son Thomas must be winkled. Ladies and gentlemen, they must be winkled out. Elsewhere in Yorkshire, Parliament was under the cosh. Interestingly, ordinary citizens and clubbermen continued to resist in the West Riding. Organised around the local chapels, the people of Bradford raised 60 horse, 280 musketeers and 500 clubbermen, all assembled with absolutely no gentry involvement whatsoever. And they now carried out a raid towards Halifax, but were crushed by royalist gentry. Several villages were burned. But look, the activism here is quite interesting, and it's part of the clubman tradition that we'll explore a bit more in 1645. So, Newcastle moved to Hull to take it. He found preparations had been made. New garrison troops had been recruited, forward defensive positions constructed. Everyone had been involved in the work, women, children and men. One local wrote, We have our virgin troops, yet... We can boast of our troops of virgins who showed such diligence. So it was not going to be easy for Newcastle, and it got harder when Fairfax opened the sluice gates around the town and so forced Newcastle to move his guns back. Whether Newcastle was right or wrong to pay so much attention to Hull is yet another military debate. There are a few. Maybe he should have just got on with it and marched south. But the Fairfaxes take a lot of credit for that. They not only held Hull in his rear... They also actively raided into Yorkshire and kept the Royalists honest. Further south then, Eastern Association commanders and a certain Colonel Cromwell were active. In July, Cromwell was at Nottingham, and there he met a young man called Henry Ireton. Henry Ireton will be a name you will hear many times in the future, so let me tell you just a little about him. And something very exciting, which I fear you may find less of a thrill than I. I'm easily thrilled, I have to warn you. He came from a family who would be described as gentle. So, you know, not grand in any way, but sort of local worthies. He was the eldest son of five. 
so you might expect, as the eldest, that he'd have some land coming to him, some prospects. But no, ladies and gentlemen, this is the thrilling bit, just so you know how to react, by the way. In this part of Nottinghamshire, Attenborough, an ancient form of inheritance survived called ultimogenitor, or borough English. This meant that the youngest son inherited everything, not the eldest. Well, butter my bottom and all that. The idea was that in a merchanty kind of environment in the Middle Ages, it would have been your eldest taking all the risks and wandering around the world, making money and meeting bad people and possibly getting killed. So the youngest was the one that stayed at home and kept the home fires burning, and therefore he was the one that inherited. Well, who'd have thunk it? So basically, for the purposes of our story, all thrilling done, our Henry was not well healed and had relatively few prospects. Still, he got to school as a gentleman commoner and probably practised a bit at law. Ayrton's family were firmly radical in the religious sense and influenced by Dutch practice. During 1643, men like Ayrton and Cromwell in the Eastern Association will prepare their region for war that was coming, so Cambridge is fortified. Cromwell was made governor of Ely, where he installed Ireton as a deputy. And Ireton was determined that the locals should have all the benefits of the kind of religious freedom that he espoused. Not sure all the locals, used to the greater ceremony and formality of the Church of England and rather loving it, saw it as a benefit. One of them grumbled about Ireton's stewardship and that he'd turned Ely into a mere Amsterdam, for in the chiefest churches on the Sabbath day, the soldiers have gone up into the pulpits, both in the forenoon and in the afternoon, and preached to the whole parish. And our ministers have sat in their seat in the church and durst not attempt to preach, it being a common thing to preach in private houses night and day. They having got whole families of independence into the aisle from London and other places. There's a bit more of that with Oliver as well. There's a story from the time of him stopping the choir singing at Ely Cathedral during services and stopping the use of organ there. It seems to be true for the Puritans, polyphonic music outside communal singing of psalms was not part of the church service. Not that Cromwell or Puritans dislike music per se. Cromwell himself will have an organ installed as a protector at his home. They just believed it wasn't done within the religious context. Cromwell, meanwhile, was scurrying around militarily, making himself useful in the cause. He assaulted the grandeur of Burley House in July, took it, and the place was thoroughly looted. The vicar at nearby Stamford, possibly the most perfect market down in England, by the way, if you're ever near it, heard of these rebels, and he rang the bells. As a result, 400 clubmen turned out to protect their own it's an interesting reminder, should you need it, that the allegiance of clubmen was not predictable. They could turn out for either side. Often they were not motivated by a side as such. They just wanted to defend their own property and their own community. Unlike the partisan West Riding clubmen we've been hearing about, this one is an attempt to keep the scourge of violence away from either side. Sadly, it rarely ends well, as absolutely it should do, in this case, Cromwell sent his brother-in-law, John Desborough, to deal with it. They drove the locals off and about 50 were killed in the process. A local commander was promoted by Parliament at this point, a young aristocrat called Willoughby, and Cromwell sees action again. I am developing Cromwell's story here quite consciously now. Sorry about that. I think you ought to know my tactics. Although it doesn't do to overemphasize Cromwell's role, some point we're going to have to explain why a glorified farmer becomes one of England's most controversial heads of state and the only commoner ever to do so. Hopefully it'll emerge. What's emerging now are a few things. He's a big family man and relationships matter to him. He has family around him like John Desborough. He's making relationships now with the likes of Ireton and Lilburn that will stay with him throughout. One of the fascinations of the civil wars for me are these bands of people whose attitudes and relationships will change and be transformed in the light of the turbulent experience of the civil wars. At the moment, here they are together in a common enterprise. But they will change and respond differently as life gets more complicated. But for now, the objective is nice and clear and they're together. As a cavalry commander, Cromwell is a man of action and learning to control the men under his command. 
His new commander, Willoughby, make a bold dash into Lincolnshire and took the town of Gainsborough from under the royalist's nose. But then, within a few days, to his horror, he found himself confronted by a section of Newcastle's army on its way south. In an action there, Cromwell and another cousin, Edmund Whaley, managed to turn their troop of horse around, reform, return to the fight, drive off a group of dragoons. So he's disciplined, and in action, he's decisive. Two more things. He's imbued with the righteousness of his cause and determined to do what is required. In this action, a royalist called Lord Charles Cavendish was cut down and killed by a trooper, one trooper Berry, and in his report to Parliament, Cromwell records that Berry thrust Cavendish under the short rib. Ronald Hutton notes the relish with which he writes this and without regret for the death of a fellow Englishman and the biblical connotations of the phrase he uses. Cromwell will frequently write moving letters home to parents of men who die under his command equally. He will write coldly of the enemies he defeats and kills. One more thing, he is liberal in writing of his exploits. His light will not remain hidden under the bustle of modesty if Cromwell has anything to do with it. The new sheets pick up on this, actually. For the first time, he was the hero of a pamphlet. Colonel Cromwell's proceedings against the Cavaliers. Not just that, but in Parliament itself, people are beginning to recognise Cromwell as a talented soldier and a potential leading commander. Right, enough of that, back to the big story, which is the panic in London now at the situation in the North in August 1643, just as Essex is now setting out to try and meet the royal challenge at Gloucester and the West. Pym is aware that a new army is needed for the North and the Eastern Association must be properly equipped to meet the challenge from Newcastle. A new recruitment is needed and a new commander. It was never going to be Cromwell. It was, in fact, Edward Montague, Earl of Manchester. He has been in our story before as Lord Mandeville, I think. He'd come very much under the influence of Warwick and the Junto, and it was he that George Digby had warned in January 1642 that Charles's officers are on the way to arrest you before the incident of the five members. Manchester will have an interesting arc in our story, but at this point in time, a 40-year-old, he is energetic in the cause, even after all the ups and downs of the revolution. People recognise his essentially good nature, possibly not a stayer, not a man with the ruthlessness needed in a revolution. A gentleman of good parts, of a debonair nature, but very facile or changeable, and had the misfortune to fall into ill company. Pym worked hard with the committees behind the scenes to gain agreement with the London Common Council, Parliament and the Committee of Safety, that while Waller would now command a London force, a new army needed to be raised for the East and North, and it was Manchester that should be put in command of the Eastern Association. A mobile army of 10,000 was to be raised, and a reserve for the London area of a further 10,000 with assessments and excise taxes raised to pay for them, to raise £22,500 a month. I imagine some thought wistfully once more of the good old days of that bauble, the ship money. How people laughed. Ha ha ha! Now Manchester and Cromwell had form. Back in the day, Manchester's family had supplanted the Cromwells and their cousins the Williams as the local power around Huntingdon. In addition, They'd clashed over Manchester's enclosures of common land. Cromwell had fought him in the courts on behalf of the residents seeing their land enclosed. Manchester had not enjoyed Cromwell's manner at the time. It seems to have lacked the suitable deference. He complained that Cromwell did answer and reply upon him with so much indecency and rudeness and in language so contrary and offensive that every man would have thought that as their natures and their manners as opposite as is possible so their interests could never be the same. But nonetheless, both of them now appeared to unite perfectly decently in the common cause. Cromwell accepted Manchester's leadership happily. Manchester recognised his talent and made him his lieutenant in charge of cavalry and expanded his regiment. And Cromwell sat on the county committees in Huntingdonshire and Cambridgeshire. So with Newcastle still tied down at Hull, Manchester started his campaign with a kind of energy that he will later not show. Kings Lynn, the only royalist outpost in East Anglia, surrendered quickly, and Manchester moved north through September. 
the objective now to rescue Hull and halt the detachments of Newcastle's army that were moving south, past Gainsborough now retaken, and threatening and besieging Lincoln. There are a couple of incidents on the way in the terms of the Cromwell story that we should note. On the 22nd of September 1643, he seems to have met for the first time with Thomas Fairfax near Hull. This would be a long association, wherein for much of it, Fairfax would be his commanding officer, and it was a strong relationship of mutual respect formed around this time, though more of that long in the future, of course. Then also, Cromwell's relationship with the future leveller John Lilburn continued. Cromwell had spoken for Lilburn in Parliament back in 1641, if you remember, and had him released. After being captured at Brentford, as we'd heard, and freed through the offices of Elizabeth Lilburn's walk to Oxford, John had then sold his brewing business at a loss to carry on the good fight. So Cromwell now got in touch with him and suggested that he take up a commission in the East as an association and landed him a job as a major in a foot regiment. So, Honest John and Elizabeth set themselves up in Boston and Lincolnshire and Lilburn would rise to be Lieutenant Colonel of Dragoons in Manchester's own regiment. Cromwell and Lilburn both shared the same preference for a measure of Protestant religious freedom, but this was not a standard view. So when some Bostonians and some of Cromwell's troopers held a private religious meeting at Boston, the sort of non-conforming independent meeting even Presbyterians disapproved of, the governor intervened, as was pretty standard as a response to an unlicensed meeting at the time. He broke the meeting up, he arrested the men. Lilburn tried to pacify the governor, but when that failed, he rode 20 miles to Sleaford to catch his influential friend, and duly, Cromwell took up the cudgels on his behalf and was able to sort it out with the governor and get people released. So Cromwell is kind of becoming a sort of minor power broker, a defender of religious freedoms, friend to congregationalists, and a man to go to if you've got a problem. The business now, though, was to retrieve Lincoln from Newcastle, which had fallen after the battle at Gainsborough. The engagement which follows was chaotic and in the end not much more than a fierce cavalry battle. So, past the old castle of Bolingbroke, famous for, well, you know all about Henry and Bolingbroke, don't need to tell you lot, Manchester came on the outposts of Newcastle's main army in the form of its cavalry. That evening, the 10th of October, Manchester held a council of war and it was decided they should push forward. The following day they did so, marching towards the little village of Winsby. Trouble is, Manchester let things go a bit. There was struggling going on. Cavalry got too far ahead of the infantry, isolated from their support. Aha! thought the royalists. There's a chance for glory. Charge the enemy before the two can support each other, beat them piecemeal, divide, conquer and rule. So there we are in Parliament's army. Cromwell leading the association forces in the van, singing psalms, as you do, with Fairfax and his northerners way back in the rear. Enemy dragoons appear. The forlorn hope, I think you might call them, their job to disrupt the enemy and run away before they get caught, while the main bunch then sorted out the ones you distracted. Cromwell saw them, ordered a charge to catch them before they could run, but they were better than he hoped. They fired a second volley, Cromwell's horse was shot from underneath him, at that moment, the main body of Royalist cavalry hit Cromwell's troopers hard. His men scattered under the weight of the attack. A Royalist officer, Ingram Hopton, stood over Cromwell to finish him off. It was all over. Except it wasn't. Cromwell's troopers recovered. They held. They rallied. They held Hopton off, and it was Hopton that died. How different would history have been, I wonder, had he run him through under the short rib? Cromwell found a new mount, but it was Fairfax's day, really. He brought his regiment up at a gallop into the Royalist flank. Newcastle's men panicked and broke and fled and were pursued for miles, the country lanes strewn with body. The Battle of Winsby was a small engagement, maybe a couple of thousand men each side. But it was a complete victory, and it did have a major impact. Newcastle's advance was halted. It then drew back. Lincoln fell to Parliament on the 20th of October, Bolingbroke Castle on the 14th of November, and Gainsborough was regained by Parliament on the 20th of December. A small battle, but big outcomes. The news of Winsby in October came to Newcastle, sitting outside the walls of Hull, just as Fernandino Fairfax was counterattacking from the garrison. The siege had not been going well. 
Newcastle's men were wet and demoralised and the counter-attack overran many of their guns. Now, here was news that a revitalised Eastern Association army was at his back. And while the hammer kept falling, the Royalist wires were buzzing with the news of the Solemn Leaven Covenant. At any time, the Scots could appear over the horizon in force. And in fact, they'd already gathered in Berwick. It was time to go. Time to go north to prepare for this new challenge. Cavendish broke camp, started the march north to Newcastle, and Hull was relieved. There it was. Any dream of a march from the north and east onto London had been thwarted by that devil of the war a long siege and Manchester's revitalised Eastern Association. 1643, that had started so bright, was still a goodish year for Charles, but nubbit more than that. For my last item, I might remind you that I think two or three episodes ago, I talked about losing three major figures of the early revolution, and I only talked about two. There was Lord Brooke, who may have passed you by anyway. There was John Hamden. Where then, I hear you ask, where was number three? Well, it's John Pym, as it happens. John Pym becomes a little less visible after the war starts. As I think Conrad Russell wrote, war was in a sense the defeat of Pym's strategy to coerce the king into good sense by constitutional means. So essentially, Pym went into the background because he works the parliamentary committees, becomes the administrator, enabler, organiser. But as the peace march is demonstrated, he's still the face of the revolution to many in London. Through 1642 and 1643, it is much due to Pym's genius that the mechanism and sinews of war had been created for Parliament. Parliament, after all, was forced to innovate much more than the king, who simply reinstituted the same mechanisms and people that had existed pre-war. So to Pym, the network of committees in the houses, the county committees, to him, the drive to implement the kind of taxation which was hated, but of course required. He's also largely instrumental in the strategy of hitching the revolutionary wagon to the Scottish horses. He died before the Scots actually arrived and before the impact of that decision really becomes clear and the division between Presbyterian and Independent begins to grow and to bite. Probably he would have stuck with the Scots and the Covenants as the Independent movement grows, but it's not entirely clear. Despite his influence on the English Revolution, he's a curiously unknown figure these days. His early death, I suppose, and another problem with the way Cromwell dominates the narrative maybe a crime I see I'm now committing myself in this very episode. He has to be seen as the midwife of the revolution, albeit recently it's been recognised how important was the influence of peers like Warwick and Brooke and Bedford in the early stages. Pym was very unusual in not holding any offices of state, of not having a clear single patron who directed all his activities. He's been described, therefore, as the first career politician. His commitment to the cause, his control of politics, his mastery of detail was absolute. At his funeral oration, the minister remarked that mastery of those papers was achieved by regularly beginning work at three o'clock in the morning. He was a hard-working servant of reform. From the middle of 1643, he'd been feeling increasingly ill, racked by a painful stomach cancer. The Royalist pamphlet celebrated and declared he was being eaten alive by lice which apparently is the traditional fate of a usurping tyrant. Did not know that? Take note, any usurping tyrants out there, watch out for those lice. He died on the 8th of December 1643 at Derby House. He did not die rich, too busy working for the cause, and he seems to have lacked the traditional sticky fingers of great men, so Parliament agreed to pay off his debts. He was buried in Henry VII's chapel at Westminster Abbey. When Charles II arrived back in town, it was decided, well, mm, that's not the thing, so he was dug up and chucked into a common pit at St Margaret's. Pym never even considered a future without the king, and maybe his greatest failure was not to recognise that Charles's commitment to religion was as great as his, and he failed to take account of that. But he worked constantly for peaceful change. He made compromises to try and make that happen along the way, but Charles could never quite meet him halfway, though they got close in 1642. If you were going to push the boat out, you might make the Whiggish declaration that John Pym can stake a claim as a founder of parliamentary democracy. So there we go. Another epic, so sorry. 
The situation at the end of 1643, start, Charles started well, faded in the second half. England and Wales are forming into two armed camps, still on the West and North Royalist, East and South Parliament model. The Irish are entering the war through Chester in the West. The Scots are due to appear like avenging angels in the North. We will begin to see the impact of that intervention, both on the battlefield, but also on the unity of the English parliamentary cause, which will not survive the pressure to submit to the dictates of the Scottish Kirk. However, I have more immediate news of the future. Next week, I have a week off, and so Gavin Whitehead of the Art of Crime podcast has prepared for you an amuse-bouche of a podcast. The Art of Crime is a ripping cast, a lovely idea where history, true crime and arts meet. You are therefore going to hear a story about Madame Tussaud, Maria Manning, and the true crime controversy of 1849. I will tell you no more. You will love it. A Hanadut. Then, since we have had 18 months of war, and war is now part and parcel of English life, I think it is time that we pause. I have two jobs to do. Firstly, to talk of military matters, the life of the soldier going to war, their lives, how they fought. Also, to consider what all this meant to the people of England. Talk about the cost of war, who pays the price of this great struggle. So, there will be two episodes. The first, talking about war at a national level, the great marching armies, that sort of thing. But then... The war that affects the lives of people far more, actually, the network of local loyalties, garrisons and sieges, which is a relatively untold story, but a big one. That will then be it for 2023. Possibly maybe be back on the 31st of December, haven't decided yet. Anyway, I'll know in a couple of weeks, probably, when we have that first of the pair. And I'll speak to you then. Meanwhile, then, have a good one, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.